Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. You know, we have been through a lot this year, things that we could have never predicted. It has been an ordeal, to say the least. But through it all, we've managed to keep one in-person commitment alive while working remotely. That's right. Last January, we embarked on quite a journey, the beginnings of a seven-year-plus journey, in fact. But luckily, it did not require us to leave the house during a pandemic. Our journey was a mental one, through time and space, to ancient Judea, the Galilee, and Babylonia. Our time machine? The Talmud. Daf Yomi is a massive international learning project to study the entire Babylonian Talmud in only seven and a half years at the rate of one page a day. Daf means page, Yomi means daily. Tens of thousands of Jews and many curious non-Jews are part of the Daf Yomi Book Club worldwide. Sounds easy, right? Have you ever read a page of Babylonian Talmud? Pretty sure I can't handle more than a single page in a day, and I'm not sure about others. That's because each Talmudic page is an incredibly dense, double-sided folio of multi-generational conversations among the rabbinic sages of the first few centuries CE. The Talmud has 63 tractates, or sections, dealing with literally everything of importance to the Jews of this era. When to pray, how to pray, the right way to do Shabbat, the wrong way to use a toilet, and more. Over the course of our first year of study, we have tackled three full tractates, Brachot, Shabbat, Eruvin, and right now we're in our fourth, Pesachim. And when I say we, I don't just mean Dan and I, but everyone across the world learning the Talmud in tandem. We have read rabbinic conversations and debates that range from the extremely tedious, to us anyway, various cubit and hand-breath measurements, for example, to incredibly inspiring, fascinating, entertaining, deeply weird, and even profoundly not safe for work. So fair warning, this episode includes some passages that are definitely R-rated. The debates of the sages sometimes lull us into a false sense of security. You are in a long discussion about what time of day it's appropriate to say the Shema prayer, then bam, you find yourself suddenly on a tangent about why you should never go into a ruined building with a demon. No aspect of existence is off limits. The Talmud isn't just recorded debates between rabbis, where proof text is presented against proof text until someone wins an argument. It's also a window into the everyday life and thinking of our distant ancestors. But it's not arbitrary. The most interesting and most mundane aspects of daily life can be manifestations of faith and fulfillment of God's commandments, and as such they are carefully examined and discussed by the sages. We may sometimes make jokes about the plethora of opinions, but that should not take away from the importance and meaning of the very act of studying Talmud, the heart of rabbinic Judaism. When studying the Talmud, learning in pairs, or Chavruta learning, is encouraged. Until March, Miriam and I learned the daily doff together at the office, both arriving early to pour over texts before jumping into the workday. Now we text or chat about our learning for the day, even on weekend, because daff don't stop. 
For me, studying the Talmud daily has put the text in direct dialogue with my modern life. Sometimes it's jarring and alien. Sometimes it is completely familiar to my own experiences. There's something amazing and connecting about it. With daily reading of the DOF and with our own discussions about it, we are joining a multi-generational global conversation that has spanned millennia. Miriam, are you ready to do this for another six and a half years? Dan, I am as ready to do that as Reish Lakish was to jump into the Jordan River with Rabbi Yochanan, which is to say, I am so ready. To help us reflect on our first year of Daf Yomi, we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast two experts, Rabbi Avi Killip and Rabbi Avi Strasberg. We'll ask them about the evolution of the Talmud and revisit some of the most memorable pages. Rabbi Avi Killip is the Hadar Institute's Vice President of Strategy and Programs. Hadar empowers Jews to create and sustain vibrant, practicing, egalitarian communities of Torah learning, prayer, and service. She is also the host of the Responsa Radio podcast. Rabbi Avi Strasberg is the Director of National Learning Initiatives at Hadar. She is also, marvelously, written a haiku for each page of Daf Yomi. Rabbi Killip and Rabbi Strausberg, thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Thanks for having us. Such a pleasure to be here. It's exciting. For those out there who may not be familiar with learning Talmud, it's probably helpful if we give a bit of historical context. So what is Judaism's oral law? How was it transmitted through the generations? And why was it eventually written down to become the Talmud? Such a good question, Miriam, and such a big question. So this is Avi Strasberg here. You're going to have a hard time distinguishing between me and my colleague, Avi Killip. What is the oral law? So I think what's so beautiful about this question here is that our Jewish tradition was always intended to be taught both with the written Torah, so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but that we had to learn it. What the sages wanted is that we had to learn it with that oral Torah, that they felt like the written Torah shouldn't stand alone, that there were questions that were going to come up, debates we wouldn't know how to answer, and that we had to side by side hold the written Torah, so hold those five books with the oral Torah. And so the oral Torah is the attempt to make sense and figure out how to apply and bring to our lives a written Torah. And so the oral Torah, when we're talking about that, normally we're thinking about the Mishnah. So that's being um, collected and edited between zero and 200 CE. That's those earlier rabbis attempt to make a legal code out of the Torah, because there's all sorts of stuff in the Torah, stories and laws and genealogies and family histories. But if you want to follow laws, you need a law code. So that's the Mishnah, zero to 200 CE. And then the um, Talmud or the Gemara, so that's what we're really focusing on today. That's those later rabbis attempt to make sense of the Mishnah, that even the Mishnah was terse in its language, and there were things that the later rabbis didn't understand. And so the Gemara is the commentary, the attempt to explicate and apply and understand the Mishnah. And again, what's so incredible is that really until the Middle Ages, so until the 13th, 14th, 15th century, all of that was transmitted orally. And the idea being that the oral law wasn't supposed to be written down, it's supposed to be given over orally. And I think that that's for a couple of reasons. I think one reason is it just emphasizes the importance 
of the teacher-student relationship in Judaism. That if it was the fear is that if it was just written down, then I could just go out and learn Torah on my own. I wouldn't need a teacher. And it would become, Torah could become this sort of solitary pursuit. And even the written versions of it existed before the Middle Ages, even at the same time that they were being redacted and compiled, those written versions weren't considered reliable. It was better to rely on the oral tradition, to rely on a teacher, to hear it orally, than rely on the written word. And that really didn't switch until, until much later, because that's how important it was to learn from a teacher. The other idea for why it was only so late that we started really turning to the written word is that once something becomes written, there's the fear or the sense that it might become stale or it might become locked down, or you might feel like it's not a living conversation that we're a part of. And so there was this resistance to writing down the oral law because we wanted it to stay that alive tradition that really it is today. And I think that that's something, thinking about learning Dafyomi, that tension between oral law and written law and writing down the oral law and what happens, is something that I'm thinking about today with Dafyomi practice, that if, if really learning Gemara for all of these centuries was supposed to be something you do, with a teacher, you do in relationship. It's about that conversation and debate. On one hand, having the Gemara written down and having resources like Safaria so that it makes it possible that, so that I can just learn Daf Yomi on myself, reading the Hebrew, reading the English, whatever it is, it's, it makes it much more accessible. But the loss of that is the loss of what it means to learn in relationship and what it means to learn with the teacher. And so that's what we have to figure out. How do we allow that access while still somehow maintaining that sense of relationship, which is what I think um, you, Miriam and Dan, that you guys are doing, that you're figuring out how to learn it on your own, but also learning it in relationship with each other. Yes, and we're going to definitely talk more about that later because it's definitely changed how we kind of thought we were going to learn. Well, when I say it's changed, the pandemic changed how we thought we were going to be doing Dafyomi. But uh, as you said, it's been a very interesting journey in, in learning it together remotely. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But let's go back a little bit to Dafyomi itself, which is a relatively speaking, it's quite new, right? So what's the origin story of how Dafyomi became um, the sequential worldwide learning initiative that so, so many thousands of people are doing? I would say Dafyomi is exactly as you're describing. It's the idea of breaking down the, the big project of what would it mean to learn the entire Talmud? How would anybody even conceptualize of such a big project? It's sort of the ultimate breaking that down into pieces and saying, well, what if we learned one page per day? And even if we learn one page per day, it's still going to take us seven and a half years to get through this project. One page of Talmud per day is actually a lot of Talmud to be taking in per day. So even in this micro, just take it one step at a time. It's still a pretty ambitious project to take on. People like to talk about it as the, the original giant Jewish book club. Practice first originated in the 1920s, so it's a lot newer than Talmud learning, right, or, or the oral Torah that um, Rabbi Strasberg was describing before. And this project for many decades now has been primarily a project of, of Orthodox Jewish men. And gradually over the years, that has begun to open up to, to more people and to 
to more different types of Jews um, and people looking to the Talmud for different things. So actually this past January, Hadar, where both of us teach, hosted a seum in New York City for the completion of that cycle of the Talmud, I, I suppose right before you two started learning. And we had over 200 people who came to our egalitarian seum, which is something that I think probably wouldn't have happened even seven and a half years before that. And I'll say I have huge hopes for how much bigger that will be at the end of this next cycle. Um, because I think this cycle in particular, there are so many new learners, including the two of you, um, that actually now Hadar has been partnering with My Jewish Learning to celebrate a seum at the end of each tractate of each Masefet. And we've been having over 500 people who have been logging in for those. And that's just who happened to know about our seum. So I would say the project is really growing in number, but also in diversity and in types of learners. So I will admit that I went into this not knowing much, uh, and I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the Talmud is filled with recurring characters who have very distinct personalities. And it was evident to us from the day we started with Trate Prochot that their personalities was just this enormous factor in how they debated and what they debated. And, you know, that includes Hillel and Shammai, Reish Lakish and Yochanan, Rabbi Akiva Yochanan, Ben Zakai. Who are your favorite recurring rabbinical figures in the Talmud and, and why? I think a couple of the, the people that come to mind for me, it's not just about the personalities, but I think it's it's also about the relationships of how those people relate to their colleagues. Because as you were saying, Dan, it's it's about because the Talmud is about this exchange within the same generation, across generations, it's always that person is always in relationship to someone else, which feels so important. Going back to what I was saying before about Talmud not being, even for them, not being something they do alone, but they do in relationship. So who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about Rav Yosef and Abai. So Rav Yosef, he's the teacher in Abai, he's the student. And we know that later on in his age, as Rav Yosef got older, that he began to forget some of his Torah. And so there's a number of moments throughout the Gemara that you just stumble upon where Abai will say something, Abai will ask him a question, and Rav Yosef will say something like, oh, I haven't heard that Torah, or I don't know that Torah. And Abai will say back to his teacher, you taught it, you actually taught us that, you taught us that, and this is what you said about that. And then Rav Yosef will say like, oh, yes, yes, I did teach that Torah, and then we'll go on to sort of explicate or expand on something. And there's a couple of things that I love about that sweetness there between Rav Yosef and Abai, his student. I think the first is, as someone who has a really bad memory myself, I always think about my wife as being the holder of our memories, that there's like a lot of things, thank God, the longer our relationship goes on, the more I can rely on that she's going to remember things that have happened. But I think about the people in our lives who are the keeper of our memories, and that there are things that when we don't remember, we can turn to someone else and say, remind me what happened there. I also think about the humility of Rav Yosef, that when he um, forgets something, that he's able to just say, I don't know how he feels. It doesn't seem like he's expressing a lot of shame or embarrassment over forgetting. His learning that he's able to sort of just factually say, I don't remember, I, I don't know. And that I think part of why he's able to do that goes back to Abaye, that, there, that he trusts that relationship there, that Abaye, even though Rav Yosef is getting older and has forgotten some of that Torah, that there's still that deep love and respect for Rav Yosef there, that Rav Yosef feels comfortable enough with Abaye to say when I don't know or I don't, I, I forgot, and that Abaye then can say back with love, with tenderness, 
you taught us that. So I, I think that relationship, that sweetness that we should all have, we should be in places where we feel comfortable to say when we don't know and other people can support us, but also to be able to show that respect for other people feels really important. I love that you found that when I was so focused on rivalries and when they would be in conflict with each other and how they would resolve it. And, and you found this very poignant relationship. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that I love both in their relationship, Rabbi Yosef admitting when he forgets. And also I look for those moments across the Talmud with other people that there are a lot of other moments when other rabbis um, will say, I don't know. I haven't heard that. I forgot that. So really any of those moments, I'm really drawn to all those moments when the, when sort of the veil folds and the, and the rabbis admit, I don't know, haven't heard it. I forgot that. You tell me. I think that those lessons of humility from the rabbis feel really important. I love that you share where you see yourself in these texts. I think that's also why the personalities are so um, engaging is because we see ourselves in them. So I have a, a similar answer, I think, in terms of where I see myself because I am dyslexic, which means I do a lot of my Talmud learning orally with a podcast of someone who's reading it to me. And so I feel a real kinship with Rav Sheshet as a character. I don't know if you guys have encountered him. Rav Sheshet is blind. And it's not mentioned all the time. It is sometimes mentioned directly, but I always find it really interesting anytime we're learning from Rav Sheshet to ask myself, did being blind make him understand this question any differently, right? Is he hearing something different because he's hearing a play on words as opposed to what the thing looks like? Is there something about the fact that he is an auditory learner that changes the way he's understanding the Talmud? And then again, that helps me, who is also an auditory learner, to say, oh, I've, I'm also a part of this project. I'm, I'm not blind. I can read the text and I frequently am reading it. But those are, are moments that I really look for. And, and I like to lift up Rav Sheshet as a character. And again, I both like that it's not always mentioned about him. And I like knowing it and seeing how that influences how I understand who he is. And I would make up a quick plug for Hadar has an online learning platform called projectzug.org and Rabbi Tali Adler made what's really a wonderful class on Talmudic personalities on exactly this, where she sort of talks about growing up in a, in a household where there was a lot of Talmud learning and thinking of these rabbis as characters in her life. And so she, she put together a really beautiful class for anyone who's interested in exploring more about who, who are these guys and, and what, are, what are they up to? What are they talking about? Yes, listeners, we will put a link in the show notes to that. So please do check it out. So when I began studying the Talmud with Dan, I had not really realized the way in which nostalgia plays a role in these conversations. Here we are, the two of us in 2020, Dan and I, trying to understand these generations of sages and how they lived and how they sustained Judaism and exile. But in turn, the sages of the exile are trying to sort of imagine the previous generations of sages and, and rabbinic rulings and life in Eretz Israel. What was that actually like? That they're kind of trying to imagine that as well. So it's always this very interesting continuity of imagination on everyone's part. This is stretching over 1500 plus years. Do you feel like this is a unique quality of learning Talmud? 
Yeah, I love the word nostalgia that you're using, and I certainly do feel it also, in particular when you get a little further into the Talmud, and it's just page after page about sacrifices, and you think like, why do these rabbis have so much love and affection for these conversations, and and can I get myself into that place of having the nostalgia to care about exactly where I should stand when doing a sacrifice that I am really unlikely to ever do? nor is anybody. I would say a lot of people, I think when they're studying Talmud, they are asking questions about where did this conversation come from? Where have these conversations been? And in particular, academic Talmud students are asking, how did this version of the text come to be exactly how it looks now? When I'm studying Talmud, I think of myself as asking the opposite question. I'm personally much more interested in where is this conversation going? So when I'm reading the Talmud, I I just personally spend a lot less time, I think, trying to figure out exactly what was life like for the rabbis and how did they come to this question. And I spend more time looking for images and ideas and metaphors that I can find in the Talmud and then apply to the world around us to say, you know, oh, who are the essential workers of the Talmud and how can I think about what's happening now? Or if I want to think about damages of living in a racist society, how can I look to Nazikin and the categories of damage that the Talmud has given me to turn those around? So my seum for Erevin was about the idea of, of home and what does it mean to be at home and what does it mean to push the boundaries of home and feeling like when I read with that uh, lens, I suddenly said, oh, pods, like all these questions about who's in my Eruv is so similar to who's in my pod and what makes you in my pod and is it shared food or if we live in the same building. And um, so I would say for me personally, I spend a lot more time like forward looking, where, where can this go from here? Yeah, I love, I mean, I, I love the way the sort of combining what you're saying and, and Miriam, sort of your image of we're looking back and they're looking back and they're looking back. It feels like there's an extension that's happening simultaneously going backward in time and going forward in time. And that just feels like a really compelling image. And all of that, that movement through time that's going both backward through the generations and going both forward of how, how does this Talmud, what does it teach us about our lives in the moment we're in and what will it teach the next generations? There's a sense of the backward and going forward. It's all happening around the dot. It's centered on the dot. And that's one of the things that I love about adopt is even just aesthetically, you're, you're seeing like time being pulled together of, you know, you have the Mishnah in 0, 200 C, and then you have the Gemara 200 Fire and C, and then you have Rosh in 11th century, and then you have the Tosafot of 13, 14, and, and all of those conversations, it's like there's this time machine that's happening. But Avi, I love what you're saying, that it's not only that the time machine can take us backwards in time, but we also want it to pull us forwards in time. And so for me, I think the ideal relationship of learning Talmud or really learning any Torah is that it's sort of acting as a two-way mirror, both in which our lives are helping us to better understand the text or we're bringing our experiences to the text, but also that the text is teaching us something about our lives. And so there's this moving back and forth between our lives and the text and vice versa that can help us go forward, as Avi was saying. So Rabbi Killip, as we mentioned in our opening, a page does not sound like a lot of reading, but it actually is in the Talmud, an incredibly dense, info-packed, opinion-packed conversation that spans numerous topics and generations and everything else that we've already talked about. Each day, tens of thousands of people receive from My Jewish Learning and other sources a summary of the day's daf, and you've written several of these essays. And, and every time I read them, I, I am 
I'm amazed that someone was able to go through this, what can seem like at first a jumble. And honestly, for the first couple of weeks I was reading, how do you train your brain to read this? How do you glean information from this? I'm curious how you can read a page and figure out the one message to take away from it, the one message that you want to send out to tens of thousands of people who will rely on that summary to gain meaning from something that, that when reading by oneself during a pandemic, alone in their kitchen at 5.30 a.m., it's kind of hard to, to process. Yeah, yeah. I do think that Dafyomi's study is, is really a unique and different activity than Talmud study in an intensive. But Iyun is the other, other version to describe it in the Hebrew is uh, really intensively looking at one topic at a time or one page. I'll share sort of two two answers that are maybe contradictory. The first is that I received some advice very early on in my Dafyomi study, which uh, I think served me really well, which was to take notes and also to take them in a searchable format. (laughs) Um, So they said, don't write your notes on the page, write them in Google Docs so you can search for the topic. That really served me excellently in the last seven years. So for each page I studied, I was writing down just a few notes, an image, a story, an idea that really struck me, and it transformed the way I study. So when I approach a DAF, like one page for the day, I'm never trying to understand the full picture of what's happening throughout the page. I am always listening for that one idea that I'm going to hold on to. And that also means if I record that one idea, then I can search, you know, trees when I want to write a Tubishvat sermon and I can pull up any time I wrote an image or, or an idea that centered around money, water, whatever the, whatever the topic is. So I'm really looking for just one idea. And having said that, I want to also say exactly the opposite about Dafyomi, which is I actually think that the real gift of Dafyomi is not seeing the little tiny pieces, but is the chance to see the entire tractate, the entire Masechet at once. And that that really allows you to see the forest from an overhead view that is nearly impossible to do in the other form of Talmud study. If you are really trying to break your teeth on every argument, it's hard to then take a step back and say, oh, Eruvin is about the concept of home, right? Because you're so in the nitty gritty of like, did the wall need to be two inches higher? That to see the concepts at the the sort of forest level actually can be impossible to do in any other form of study. And Dafyomi gives you the chance to say, oh, page after page about how vows keep people apart is teaching me something and it's trying to tell me that vows are wrong. And I don't know if you get that when you just study one chapter at a time over the course of six months, you get a lot of other things that you don't get with Dafyomi, but but in that trade-off. So I would say hyper, hyper small and also big, big, big picture. This is so interesting because Eruvin was a bit challenging for us, let us just say. There's a lot of cubits and a lot of hands breadth and frankly, when you are looking at it on like the, the little level, like how many, what is right? What is the correct measurements? I didn't actually think about it until you just said just now about how um, you think about it in terms of like pods or bubbles and home. I was too focused on the details of what the technicality was to see the larger picture of this is home. These are the people who are considered part of, you know, the way you live at home. And that completely now just changed um, 
my entire perception of Eravine. <laughs> Sorry, Eravine. Apparently, well, look, so this is something we've learned. And now when we come across our next track date that we're like, wait a minute, this is a lot of detail. We now know a better way to approach that. So thank you. <laughs> I think there's wisdom in those details also, right? It's exactly why people say you, you can't actually see the forest and the trees at the same time. You kind of have to decide. And if you want to see the bigger picture, you sometimes have to be willing to say, I don't understand what happened here. And that's okay. Um, I would also say I'm almost always more interested in the question than the open. You'll be much more likely to find questions in my notes than you are to find answers. And then I'll have to sometimes go back and say, oh, I don't know what the answer was. I never wrote that down. Probably because I couldn't quite understand it fully, but the questions are where I get really excited. So when you read, do you read the summary first or do you read it yourself and then say, let me see if my takeaway in any way matches up with the my Jewish learning takeaway from the person who wrote this analysis? I don't start from a summary. I start from the actual reading through the text, although I think it is, and, and Rabbi Sprouse could weigh in on this also, I think it is frequent that the thing that I would pick out for my notes when I then see the my Jewish learning summary that the person is picking out the same, like the juiciest part of the page most people can find. There are pages where you say, it's all juicy and we could write about anything. But more often there are pages where we can all identify the, the sweetest gems. Yeah, I just would echo what Ravapi was saying that I think that there can be, I can sometimes have the impulse of wanting to jump to someone else's insight and summary before doing the work on my own. And I think it's actually, for me, it feels important to first just make myself go through it and get the whole context and then to reward myself by getting the sort of someone giving me the, here's the tangible takeaway, I've done the work for you. But I could say working in both directions. Yeah, I'll see where I'm at in two years if I can say, let me read this and see if if I score a, an A on this today because I, I found that sentence, even if I waited until the last quarter of, of, pay, of B, <laughs> I'm like, where is it? Where is it? Where's the thing? Oh, that's it. And then I can go back and see if I, yeah. if I matched yeah. up. It's like, uh, it trains you, I think, and I really believe this, although it may sound extreme, it trains you actually to go through life looking for wisdom. Like you, you, if you do this every day, if you spend every day asking yourself, where is the wisdom on this page? I need to find it and identify it and, and isolate it and capture it somehow that you then start to do that in everything in your life. You just start to like find and treasure the, the pieces of wisdom um, and try to capture them. So we could really do 10,000 episodes of this podcast about the Talmud and barely scratch the surface. So we want to hone in and focus on a few of our favorite DOFs. And we'd like to bring up some of ours and then hear some of yours. Now, Rabbi Strausberg, um, we know that you did this project where you wrote a haiku for Daf Yomi. So before we get into talking about our favorite pages, what inspired you to do the project of haiku poetry for each page of Daf Yomi? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, haiku was just a format that was already familiar to me. Like it's something that's followed me through my life for many years now. When I was working at Trader Joe's as an employee, they always encourage us to do taste testings for other employees of products. And when I would do taste testings, I would write haikus of the products that we were tasting or after I studied at Hadar for a year as a fellow, 
there was a pro we were supposed to do a project as fellows. And what I did is I did a year of a Torah in haiku for every Parsha I wrote a haiku. So it's just as a format, it was something that was familiar to me and made sense to me. I think specifically for Daf Yomi, it's both like such a crazy and awesome project crazy in the sense of, I mean, it's exactly what Rabavi was saying, sort of the challenge and the um, sort of importance of distilling, you know, the, if the Talmud is basically almost an infinite number of oh, an overwhelming, inundating amount of words that just keep going, keep going, haiku is forcing you to go so, even more than just an idea, even more than a 500 word My Jewish Learning Summit, to go so um, close into a mere 17 syllables. So that's like the, the crazy part of that that I just found really compelling. Um, and I also think just doing the haiku for Dafyomi, again, it's like it could just be so easy for me to get so little of Dafyomi because it's just could be such a swath of like an overabundance of words and the extreme challenge of translating each daf into a haiku, again, exactly as Ravavi was saying, but just in haiku form, is to really like, how do you get that nugget? How do you get the crystal? How do you get it down to 17 syllables? And in order to do that, it was a very similar process to what Ravavi was saying of like having to ask the question of like, well, what is the thing that I'm taking away on this daf? What is the wisdom? And, and I think even maybe more so than a Dvar Torah, it's always true that like the shortest papers are the hardest ones to write because you have to really know what you're saying. And in order, I feel to me that my best 17 syllables, my best haikus, that format, it had to be so specific. And the gift of that for me is that then if I got nothing else out of Daf Yomi or if I remember nothing from those pages, those haikus still exist in the world for me. I will say just sort of like the flip of what Rabavi was saying. On one hand, I think it was very important for me. And, I, and now that I'm doing a, the cycle a second time, I'm not doing haikus this cycle. I freed myself from that. It was very important for me to approach each doc and say like, what's the bit of wisdom? What, what, can I, what am I taking from this page? And also I sometimes, and, and it meant that I had to come away with something concrete because I forced myself to do it. It also meant that sometimes if I'm honest, once I found the nugget, once I found the haiku, I basically would turn my mind off because I was like, oh, I found the nugget. I would be so focused on getting that piece of wisdom that once I found the takeaway, it would sort of color the rest of it. And so I guess that's for me the balance of like sort of the hyper focus on finding one idea while actually still giving the rest of the daf a certain amount of attention and love. I think that's very, very cool because I think it speaks to something we observed kind of when people were excited to get into the new cycle at the beginning the beginning of last year people who have never done this before are looking for different ways to really encapsulate what they've learned and make it personal to them in artistic ways, creative ways. I've seen art based on Dafyomi, uh, poetry based on Dafyomi, and I think that just speaks to a bigger thing where people want to make it relevant for their lives and learn it in a way that is comfortable for them. So I think that's very, very interesting. So one of the things that Dan and I have done while we've you know, been doing Dafyomi for our favorite pages, we created a scale called the TMI, Talmud Memorability Index. And usually TMI stands for too much information. Um, and frankly, the most TMI pages have the highest TMI rankings. So our system goes from zero, which is cubit measurements. Again, not my forte. Immediate forgetting of, of anything relating to cubits completely gone from my mind to the highest ranking is uh, 63 in honor of the number of tractates. And those are things that are so memorable, we will never forget them even if we really, really wanted to. So to start for our 
favorite DAFs. We've collected a handful. I'm going to start with Jewish Twitter's favorite page, Brachot 62a. Okay. So in this page, various sages are using the phrase, it is Torah and I must learn, to justify, shall we say, some fairly big invasions of privacy. Rabbi Akiva observes Rabbi Yehoshua in the bathroom and learns that you're supposed to orient yourself north-south while you're pooping and how to wipe your butt with your left hand. And Ben Azai, Akiva's student, goes, uh, that seems really invasive. Personal boundaries. And Akiva's like, no, no, it's Torah. I must learn. Meaning that all aspects of life, from the bathroom and everywhere, these are all things that are part of a Jewish way of life. And he, he wants to know the right way, quote unquote, the right way to do it. So a paragraph later, same page, paragraph later, Ben Azai then does the same thing to, to Rabbi Akiva. Um, and uh, Ben Azai's own student, Rabbi Yehuda, questions it. And Ben Azai is the one who then says, it's Torah, I must learn. And in the next paragraph, Rav Kahana hides under Rav's bed while Rav is having sex with his wife. And Rav is like, dude, that's really, really inappropriate. And he's like, I'm sorry, it's Torah, I must learn. So, and then, and again, still one page, um, one side of the page, it's uh, side A. Then we go on a tangent about if you're modest in the bathroom, you'll be safe from snakes, scorpions, and demons who may be hiding there. And then it's how to fend off demons when you're in the bathroom. And then where is it okay to poop after all? So this is just like the most highest ranking of TMI content you could possibly imagine. I give it an unqualified 63 out of a total of 63. It's iconic. Pretty much everybody always talks about this particular doff. Oh, before we talk about it, generally speaking, I would love to hear the haiku for this one. Of course. And of course, this sort of goes to what Ravi, what Avi was saying, that sometimes if you like do the learning first, then you find out that what you're interested in is what everyone else is interested. In. So this was definitely the case with this one. Some of my Dabhim, some of the Dabhim that I've learned that were like my favorite, I love them so much. There was like so much good Torah. I would sometimes let myself write multiple haikus because I couldn't be restrained. And so this, with your unqualified TMI 63 index, this one was a double haiku where I gave myself two, which is the indicator exactly as you're saying that there's so much. So here's the haiku. Again, remembering that the format is five, seven, five. Tell me how to live. I'll follow you anywhere. The highest mountain. The farthest bathroom. Under your bed. Rabbi? Ad Khan? It's all Torah. Oh, wow. And so that Ad Khan there means until here, until this point, Ad Khan, it's all Torah. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> I love that. That is a very classy <laughs> way to describe this stuff. Sometimes people ask me, and this is kind of like just a, a digression. They ask me, oh, what did you learn today? And sometimes mm, very, very like serious things. And sometimes, although they, of course, the, this is being taken very seriously. It's Torah. They must learn. But to us now, we're just a little bit like, ah, bathroom stuff. Um, but that was part and parcel of everything they're discussing. In the Talmud, there is nothing that's off limits. And I think that's just remarkable. I have to say, Miriam, I loved your rendition of that page. It made me think, ooh, I want to subscribe to the podcast where she just talks me through what's happening on every page. And then you said, This is what Dan and I do. And Thank then you said that. Like it's, it would just be so, such a great uh, way to go through the Talmud. Thank you. I mean, how many times in February did we sit in the Jewish Boston office at, and it was starting to be like 845? So people were coming into the marketing department. And I said, 
Miriam, I think we got to shut the door on this <laughs> in awkward places. Yeah. This is not my favorite, but I'm going to give you one that, that I'm trying to forget. There's a really detailed discussion of contact tracing for impurity in Pesachim 17. Of course, we can assume that plagues and pandemics, while not identified as such in the Talmud, were killing significant numbers of people around the time of the Talmud. And of course, people were dying by age 40 generally. So it's not surprising that they were starting to figure out how and why bad things would spread. Um, and on this page, it also tries to figure out at what point something that is impure becomes diluted enough or diffuse enough that it will not render whatever it touches similarly impure. So it, it reads, the bread came in contact with that which touched the primary source of ritual impurity that was in the corner of the garment. The bread came in contact with the corner of the garment, not with the primary source of impurity itself. Accordingly, the garment assumes first-degree ritual impurity status, which confers upon the bread second-degree ritual impurity status, which confers upon the stew third-degree ritual impurity, which confers upon the wine fourth-degree ritual impurity status. So, I this one like just struck me, like stopped me in my tracks as I was reading because I'm like, oh my god, this is so current. And you would think that 1,500 years ago, people not only feared contagion but took steps to prevent them that we could do this now. First degree impurity, wear a mask <laughs> and stay six feet away. Maybe just for the sake of humanity, read this and figure it out. Things are bad and impure and you can stay away from them. There are ways to minimize it. So I'm going to rate this one as a 24 in the TMI because I'd really like to forget it and this entire year. But the relevancy is there. When Dan texted me, he's like, this is just like contact tracing. And I was like, oh, my God, it is. It is ancient contact tracing. So did it cut? Did it touch the entire garment or just a corner of it? A good example of what I love about Talmud is the, the frameworks, um, the, the frameworks for thinking about complex issues are there in this ancient text that we don't have to reinvent it. We can take advantage of those ancient frameworks. When I saw that this was the DAF that we were talking about, I was like, what is going to be the haiku for that DAF? I hope it's relevant. What, what could I have written? So sure enough, this is the haiku, and I think it is relevant. Even our leaders don't understand purity. To whom can we turn? Oh, that is powerful. That is very powerful. Wow. Yeah, you nailed, you, you nailed it. You nailed the spirit of that entire thing. It reminds us of this whole year. But don't worry, we've got six and a half more years to completely erase this. Okay, so let's go on to the next one. Maybe this says something about me that I need to discuss with my therapist, but I did a lot of laughing at certain very misogynistic parts of the Talmud, which are, you know, a lot of parts that deal with women. I have rarely laughed harder than at Shabbat 110a, which has a lot of very sketchy medical advice. Okay, everyone gear up for this. Okay. So what do we learn if a woman is being stalked by a snake who wants to have sex with her, just go with it, people, and she's not into it? What should she do? Well, idea one, she has sex with her husband in front of the snake. So the snake figures out, oh, she's taken. I'll just go somewhere else. That's idea one. But then some of the rabbis are like, mm, no, the snake's going to get really horny. Don't do that. Backfire, backfire. Terrible idea. So, okay. Um, what then? She tells the snake, obviously she's on her period. 
that'll get it to leave her alone. And then the doff levels up and it's like, well, what happens if the snake does go inside of her, her vagina? How do you get it out of her vagina? What a great question. So I w I'm not actually going to read it verbatim. I'm just going to paraphrase the gist of what they're talking about here. But they're like, okay, so what do people want? Okay, so we're going to make it like a snack and it's like going to be burn some fragrant stuff and it's going to stick its head out of the vagina. And then the woman can go, whoop, grab it with the tongs and throw it into the fire. Okay, because if it doesn't burn, it's going to go back into her vagina, allegedly. I don't know how often like this happened in quote unquote real life. I have a lot of questions about this. Probably never because none of this would actually work. Um, but I'll never unknow this. And there's some other things in that specific doff I'm not even going into. Uh, what do we do with this? As um, female people um, learning the Talmud, do you guys also have this moment of laughter? Or how do you deal with this kind of stuff? I have to say, after seven and a half years, I have forgotten many, many a page that you that you would think would be the top rate of yours. And I think that some of the pages that I have found moving actually stick with me more. Like the the feeling of disgust actually doesn't stay with me in the same way. But I do have a, a phenomenon. If you look through my notes, you'll see there are times where I I make commentary to myself where I write like, yuck gross, problematic. Like I write that note because I, I almost feel as though I can't write this in my notes without in some way acknowledging that I'm, I have to reject it, even though I'm not talking to anybody, I'm writing in my own Google doc, but it's like, I still have to make a statement of like, I'm recording it, I'm taking it in and I'm rejecting it simultaneously that all of, hold all of that together. And I'll say most of my dafyomi over the last seven and a half years was uh, uh, done on the subway. And I have that same like close the door instinct where I'd be like, is the person next to me reading what I'm writing? Cause I really hope that they're not. Um, yeah, Miriam, I'll say that I I think I have a similar feeling of actually some of the some of the sections that are the most specifically in terms of gender um, and sexuality that that are the most problematic, offensive, troubling, or the, also the ones that I feel like bizarrely most energized and excited reading. Like it, it definitely is a bizarre relationship to text. So I I echo that there. I guess I want to say two things. One is echoing what what Rabavi just said, that I, I think that part of the work that we're doing here is like, what does it mean to be learning? What does it mean for me to learn that text now as a woman in my generation? I feel like I'm bringing my, my role there is to learn it and to bring my text and my commentary to it that, that I'm, and exactly as Avi is saying that even if it's like marking it on my own page, this is problematic or, or then like translating it into someone else, into, into some other piece of Torah, giving the right Torah on it or creating my own, whatever it is, whatever my own spin is that I feel like I'm not just reading it and absorbing it passively. I'm reading it and then I'm commenting on it and I'm bringing my voice to it. And so all the more so I feel an obligation to learn those texts so that my voice is being inserted into that. The other thing that I'll just say is on one hand, these texts are thankfully, in a sense, like the texts that you just were describing, so bizarre and foreign and feel so um, distant from us that we wanna, in a sense, like hold them at a distance and laugh at the rabbis of the Talmud and say, how absurd and ridiculous. And I also wanna sometimes challenge us and challenge ourselves to say like, but actually what of that is still rooted in our culture today. What about in the way that men are talking about women's bodies and women's sexuality is actually not so far off 
from where we are. Maybe it's not a, a snake inside of a woman's body over a barrel and how do we get it out? But there is something of that that is still remnant in our culture today. And again, going to what Rabbi was saying before, how do we read Talmud? Not to just be so quick to either dismiss that text or laugh at that text or or say, well, that was the rabbis in our time, but to say like, actually, what about this is still true? And to the extent that there is something true in that, what what should we be doing about it? You're completely right when you talk about, well, clearly these men had no idea how a female body works. Um, so that's kind of the, the weird thing. Uh, how to balance well, they didn't know about that. So what else do they really not know? Like that feeling of how can I trust this if this is how they talk about women? Um, and that's not how they talk about women all the time. And not every rabbi and sage in the Talmud speaks about women the same way. I want to clarify that everybody has their own opinion about everything, including women. Um, but it's it's just sort of like this mental dichotomy that you have to kind of figure out, okay, there's wisdom. There's so much wisdom in here. And there's also so much that is not wisdom. And figuring out which is which to a modern, uh, a modern, uh, currently non-religious person, atheist like myself, that can be challenging. And I just find laughter to be my, my go-to response. And I think I emailed this to my mom too. I was like, oh my God, you got to read this. Yeah, I think we often text and urgently instant message each other when we come across something that just strikes us like, it's like Dan, oh my god Dan, did you get to this part yet like i i like to challenge myself to read texts like this to say is there something here is like do they not really mean snake and woman's body do they really is there something here that is trying to say something different and i want to say that i actually i have a list of pages that are maybe smaller than your list but i definitely have a list of pages and I've called Rabbi Strasberg over the years to, to complain about them, um, where I feel like this is so damaging. I, I, it's not even that I can't find a way to learn from it. I don't want to, right? Like when we're talking about really horrific stuff, it's like, I don't even want to popularize that it's in the Talmud because I'm not proud of it being in the Talmud. And there are pieces that at pages that I say, this page is more hurtful, I think, than helpful. But I don't feel that way about most of the pages. Most of the pages I read trying to say, hey, what is here? If, if what I think is going on here makes no sense, maybe there's something else going on here that I'm missing. And then we actually have the benefit of commentary, of generations of commentary to help us look for those things if we don't immediately see them, if they don't jump out at us immediately. Um, but I will also say, Miriam, that when you get to meet a Oh, I can't wait. I have so much I fun. can't wait. And I actually, as similar to what Rabbi Strasberg was saying, I had, a, it's like, I, I found, I expected studying needed to be very problematic and troubling to me. And I actually found it energizing in a way that I wanted to say to everyone, like, do you know there's an entire tractate of Talmud about vaginas? Like, who knew? That's, this is just text I'm not used to reading. And I found it exciting to sort of see what was in that text, which I had never actually encountered most of those stories directly, but trying to always ask myself, like, what, what are they talking about here? And not sit too long in the place of these guys are idiots and they don't know what they're, what they're saying. In, in 2020, I will really take the laughs wherever I can get them. So I, I think I'll continue to laugh at some of this and then think about it a little more, but, and then laugh a little bit more too. Rabbi Strasberg, do you have a haiku for this dog? Yeah, I gotta say this haiku, 
Yeah. This haiku is not like a G or PG 13 haiku. This is, I read this haiku and I was like, is this appropriate to say on air? But it's like, honestly, it's not me. It's the doc. So here's, here's the haiku. Take it for what you will. This is Torah. We must learn. Let her stand before our phallus, naked legs spread. We'll watch from afar. Oh, yes. That's very, oh, but at least she gets the tongs. This is like, in studying it in the moment, I wasn't so verklempt about it, but like in thinking back on it now with both of you, I think I'm just oh, horrified by it and also fascinated, still fascinated by it at the same time. So I also don't want to give the impression that, to our listeners, not everything that I loved about Dafyomi was the salacious stuff. And now I want to talk about a Daf that I, um, I just really love for other reasons. <laughs> so Brachot. 2728, fairly early, has some really powerful stuff about transitions of power. Essentially, the rabbis have a bit of a mutiny uh, to depose Rabbi Gamliel as chief of the rabbinic court. He's he's used his position of power to bully other people, uh, particularly Rabbi Yehoshua, and Rabbi Gamliel is also very selective about who gets to learn. So the situation gets so bad that they put Gamliel on mute by um, taking away his, or telling his amplifier to stop repeating his words to everybody. And then they replace him with literally an 18-year-old, Elazar Benazaria. He is a child. <laughs> I mean, at the time he's 18, so that's like half a life. So middle-aged man of 18 years old. And they, okay, boomer gone layout. They're like out with the old, in with the new. Um, and here he is. He decides to take a completely different approach. He opens the doors for anybody anybody who wants to learn and adds benches, I believe, to um, the learning room so that everybody can join if they wish to. And I think about that all the time when I am learning Talmud online for free. I have access. And Elazar Benazaria was a person who had access, who was given tremendous responsibility and power in this context, and used it to open doors very literally um, for people who didn't have that before. Um, so shout out to safaria.org, the Elazar Benazaria web of websites in this context. I give this stuff like a 59 out of 63 on the TMI scale because there's nothing TMI about it, um, but it's meaningful and it says a lot to me now about how to learn Talmud and what we should do about gatekeeping learning in the Jewish community. Yeah, I think that this is a, a really powerful daf. I think something that I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I just actually, I felt like I had the wrong haiku on this daf. And coming back, listening to you, Miriam, give over the daf, I was writing a new haiku because I think this time what I'm thinking about here is I'm thinking about how sure Rabban Gamliel was about it, that he felt like he was doing it for the right reasons. He felt like he was doing it for the sake of Torah. And then when he realizes, when the when the doors come open and all these students pour in, he then, then I'm sort of struck by that moment when he realizes that maybe he did something wrong, that maybe he was keeping Torah out, that he goes from being so sure in the name of Torah to actually, what have I done? And then ultimately the dot continues where he actually then goes and he tries to seek forgiveness and tries to humble himself, that he really goes on this real journey there. But I'm thinking about the things that we do because we think we're doing them in the name of Torah, that we think we're doing the right thing, but actually it turns out it could be that we're doing 180 degrees the wrong thing I mean, on one hand, he's, his character is, is problematic in the story, but ultimately, I think there's something really powerful 
um, that he allows that doubt to, to come in. He allows that sort of facade to crack and to get to a place. And he even ends up, even once he's um, deposed, he ends up staying in the baby drush. He goes back to the baby drush. He humbles himself. And so I, I just think that's, that. again, I, I love these moments of like the flaws of the leaders, the humanity of the leaders. Of Sometimes we're wrong. You know, Gamaliel does do teshuva. He, he, he understands that he's done something wrong. Um, and it's that process of redemption quote unquote redemption, uh, that I think is very important to the story overall, because we don't give up on Gamliel. They don't give up on Gamliel. He's not written out of the community because of this. Yeah, I think that last piece, there's so there's so much of this story that resonates with us now, um, where it would be so easy to feel like, oh, we are the first generation. We invented cancel culture. That never existed until the word deplatforming existed. And to say, actually, this story not only shows us that the problem is ancient, but offers us a way forward. The story ends where Rabbi Gamliel is like head guy. He's, he remains the head of the yeshiva three weeks of the month. And on the fourth week, the younger 18-year-old gets to be in charge. And just the idea of shared leadership, which would feel so outrageous right now, you know, if you think about the political world we live in, where it's like there are two sides and you're on a side, the idea of like, I'll govern three three weeks out of the month and you govern the fourth would seem so forward thinking and outrageous. And actually that's this ancient model that we have of not of not letting things continue as they were. We do get to add those extra benches into the Beit Midrash, but also not losing access to the wisdom of a leader who is one of the greatest teachers in the Talmud. So I would love to hear the haiku for this stuff. Of course. And this is the haiku written on the spot for you, Miriam, based on your oh. amazing retelling. This is the oh my fresh God. haiku, not a stale seven and a half year old one. There you go. So sure of myself, I barred the doors, kept them out. God, what have I done? Oh my gosh. That resonates. Thank you. <laughs> oh, these are amazing. Okay. So these are some of our most memorable ones, but for the two of you, what what are your favorites? Let's let's hear a couple that still stick with you. Rabbi Killip? Similar to Rabbi Strasberg, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a last minute change. Actually, I went and found a different text while we were talking. I was originally gonna bring something from Aravine, um, but I feel like we talked about that a little. So I will share a little piece from Talmud Bavli Sota 21a. Oh, it's spoilers. This is a a parable, a mashal on the phrase. It's an extrapolation on a phrase from Proverbs, which is Ner Mitzvah Torah Or, the idea that mitzvah is a candle or a lamp and Torah is light. And then the Talmud goes on to say, well, what, what does that mean? Mitzvah is a candle and Torah is light. How do we understand these images? And they tell us the following story, which is a story that I have been really holding on to in the, the dark, crazy time of this pandemic that we are in. So that's why I'll share this story. Here's the parable. A person walking in the dark of night and thick darkness is afraid of thorns, pits, thistles, wild beasts, and bandits, and doesn't know on which road they are walking, right? There's a lot, there's a lot of things right now that we are stressed out about. We are in the dark, we are in the wilderness. If a torch of light comes their way, they are safe from the thorns, the bits, and the thistles, but still afraid of the wild animals and the bandits, and still does not know on what road they are walking. When the sun rises at dawn, they are safe from the wild animals and the bandits, but still don't know on what road they are walking. 
And when it comes to the crossroads, they are safe from all of them. Okay, so, so here's the image, right? We are, we are lost in, in a thick wood and there are so many things that we are afraid of, right? If you have a candle is the first image, you know that you won't step on anything, but it doesn't protect you from the animals or the bandits that might get you. When the sun comes up, you're now safe both from the immediate surroundings and a little bit further, but you may still be lost in the woods. Just because the sun came up doesn't mean you're not lost. Only when you come to the crossways do you really know where you are. And then we have to say, what is the candle and what is the sunlight? Um, and this text tells us the candle is mitzvah, right? Day-to-day -day actions behaviors that we take are getting us through this pandemic, just protecting us from the thistles, right? Just don't let me step on, on a thorn. Just keep me safe from what's around me. That's in our everyday behavior. And then there's sunlight. Sunlight is compared to Torah. And I think that's wisdom, right? That's saying, let's take the time to stop and study and learn and think and discuss with people and invest. And it's that kind of like level of, of, Stop of uh, more intentional thought and leadership and mining the world around us for wisdom that is going to help us be safer from the things that are a little further out, right? How do we plan not just for tomorrow, but for next year? And not just for my immediate family, but for everybody around me. That's a deeper level. And to some extent, even there and even or, right, even mitzvah and even Torah aren't going to totally orient us right now, because at some point we just have to keep walking along until we find ourselves at the crossroads. And when we find ourselves at the crossroads, we will then know where we are. But even there and even, you know, near mitzvah and Torah or can't necessarily save us completely. There is some element of just travel until we find our way out of this. So this text has been really has been really with me this little this little metaphor and trying to figure out how to how to hold the candle and the sunlight until we can find our way to the crossroads. It's so fascinating to to think about us reading this in the context of 2020 and that this is the oh my god math seventh or eighth cycle um, of Dafiomi and and to kind of if I could go back and see what people were saying in 1938 if I could see what people were saying in 1945 how a page would relate to the lives that they were living and the people that they had lost. And I keep thinking about the cot that we are at a moment in time, the Talmud is sort of eternal, but we are finding its meaning in each part of the timeline that, that we're in. It's just fascinating to me. To, and, and hearing that from you, Rabbi Killip, is just, is very moving. We've recently, at least when we're recording this, we've been in all the dream sequence of the Torah. So reading about Joseph's dreams and Pharaoh's dreams and the baker and cupbearer. So I have dreams on my mind. And so that takes me to, I think, what will be high up on your TMI index and the dream sequences towards the end of Masechet Brachot. So one of my, one of my favorite sections there that I want to share, there's an, a great story, Rava and Abaye. Um, so Rava and Abaye, they're having these dreams that are the identical dreams, and they go to a dream interpreter. And the catch is that Abaye pays the dream interpreter, and Rava doesn't pay the dream interpreter. So they both tell this dream interpreter the same dream, and Abaye, who paid him, gets a good reading and says, like, this exact same dream, all this good stuff is going to happen. And then the dream interpreter says to Rava, who doesn't pay him, gives him a bad interpretation, and they go along their way. And again, they come back and they come back and they, Abaye pays, Rabbi doesn't pay. They tell the exact same dream. Again, the dream interpreter interprets. 
Abaya gets a good interpretation and Rava gets a bad. And this goes on and on and on. And the dream interpretations that this dream interpreter is giving Rava are quite, quite bad. They involve, you know, houses falling down, teeth falling out, his wife dying, children dying. They're quite dire dream interpretations. And sort of incredibly, Rava keeps going back to this guy, um, keeps not paying him and keeps having these same dream interpretations. So finally, 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 Rava decides to pay him. He decides it's about time. So, and but only after the dream interpreter predicts that his wife is going to die and then something else is going to happen. And, and one of those things happens. So he goes back finally, he goes back and he pays them. And this time, finally, the dream interpreter actually gives him a good interpretation. And they go on this journey together, Rava and the dream interpreter, amazing that they're still hanging out together after all these bad interpretations. And Rava notices that a book falls out of the bag of the dream interpreter. And on the book, this piece of paper comes out and written on this piece of paper, it says, that all dreams follow the mouth, all dreams follow the interpretation. And suddenly it clicks for Rava. Rava realizes that this dream interpreter is holding a piece of paper that says all dreams follow the interpreter, which is to say dreams in themselves don't contain meaning. They don't contain truth. It's actually the interpretation that's applied to the dream. And so suddenly Rava has this light bulb that actually the person who had the power to interpret the dream was the dream interpreter. And when the dream interpreter was choosing essentially to interpret the dream for the negative, he was basically making all these things, things potentially happen in Rava's life. He like has this revelation and he says, like, I forgive you for all these bad interpretations you made. But the one thing I don't forgive you for is that you predicted that my wife was going to die. Who did it? She didn't die because he, for whatever reason, either because the dreams don't, dream interpretations don't actually come true or because he so quick enough changed, went back and paid him, but he did predict the death. And so he says, I forgive you for all this, but I don't forgive you for predicting my wife is going to die. And so I just think this text is so powerful. I'm thinking about it also in terms of the, the sections of the Torah of the chief um, cupbearer and the baker handing their dreams over to be interpreted by Joseph and Pharaoh handing his dreams over to be interpreted by Joseph. I think that the lesson here um, is that the dreams don't contain their own meaning, but actually the, the people who have power are the people who we allow to interpret our dreams. The, the warning here is that there may be moments in our lives where we're like, we're not sure what course to take or we're not sure what to do. And we may have the impulse to hand that over, to hand our lives over to someone else and to let someone else make those decisions for us, to give up power, um, to give up agency in our own lives. And I think that the lesson here is to not, to be careful who we give up agency to, to be careful who we allow to be our dream interpreters, and that the hope and the goal is rather that we're able to um, maintain that agency, maintain that control, and be our, be our own dream interpreters. And also, it's a great reminder to pay your dream interpreters a fair wage. A living wage. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious when you decide that you are going to, you can join Dafyomi at any time. Just read the summaries from January 2020 until now, and you'll be all caught up. But what would you tell people uh, who are interested in learning Talmud? What advice would you give them? The question is, learning Talmud or learning Dafyomi? Two really different questions. I'll, I'll try to answer both of them, which is to say, learning Talmud, I think Talmud, I really love Talmud. I think it's an incredible thing. And, and what I love about it, we've talked about this a little bit. I, I love that it's, I think to learn Talmud is to be invited 
into this um, cross-generational conversation that, again, as we've been talking about, is going backwards 1,500 years, 1,000 years, and also going forwards in time, and that it's an invitation to bring ourselves and to bring our voices to that conversation. And so we do that, again, with that sort of sense of nostalgia, as Miriam was saying, that on one hand, we have to be really invested in understanding what were the rabbis saying and what were the times they were writing in and, and what were they, how were they understanding the other rabbis, but at the same time, to do that with grounding in our own time and to feel what it means to learn Talmud is to be invited into that conversation, to be invited into that dinner party. What I want to say about learning Daf Yomi, if there are people that are thinking about learning Daf Yomi, at the end of seven and a half years, if one completes it, everyone will, will hold you up as heroes that have done this amazing, an amazing thing. And in a sense, you will have done an amazing thing. It's, it's an incredible, incredible accomplishment. But I worry and I caution against holding up Daf Yomi as being the only and ultimate learning goal. I think Daf Yomi is a learning goal that for some people is an amazing choice. Clearly for you too, it's an amazing choice, but also for other people, it's not the right learning's choice. And Daf Yomi is not for everyone and it shouldn't be for everyone. What I want to encourage people to do is to commit to and find the right learning practice, which may or may not be Daf Yomi. And that would be amazing if we could get to a place of where we really value different learning projects equally. So it's not just, oh my God, you're the best learner because you've completed Daf Yomi and we're placing this ultimate prize on that type of learning. But how amazing that for however many years, seven and a half years, you were you know, learning 10 minutes of the Parsha every day. Or once a week, you were committing to learn a little bit of the Rambam, or you were learning a daily poem a day. I think what's important is not the type of learning that we do, but actually committing the time for the ritual of continued learning and continued growth. So any words of encouragement for Dan and me as we enter, and I know this is like the Gregorian calendar year, as we enter our second year of of studying and doing the DAF together. First of all, just to offer you both a huge mazel tov on getting to this point. Yeah. Uh, what, whatever it is that Ravavi just said, I think it's a heroic, amazing thing <laughs> to have learned DAF Yomi for a year. And you should just be so proud of that accomplishment on its own. It sounds like it's it's been really so so meaningful and enriching for both of your lives. So I want to say two things. One is that finishing any Masechet, finishing any single tractate is really an amazing thing. And I know people who have learned Daf Yomi for two or three years of their life, every page a day, and then they have a narrative ar around that learning of like, I'm a failed Daf Yomi student because I only learned for three years and not seven years. So I would really say number one is really mark e and celebrate the end of each Masechet and feel really proud of that learning. And whether you can Continue learning the next Masefa never takes away the learning that you did up until that point. So stopping at any point is, is really a, a treasure and not a failure. And I will also say that in looking ahead to, you know, what are the particular tractates that you have ahead in this next year? I really think you're like in the sweet spot right now. As you said, a lot of people find Aravine to be very hard. I would say you're in the sweet spot of like these, this next year of, of tractates are really they're really fun ones. There's some harder years ahead once you get into sacrifices, but I think this next year is going to really be be a lot of great TMI ratings for your year ahead. Excellent. 
Um, well, thank you both, Rabbi Strasberg and Rabbi Killip. Thank you both for coming on the Vibe of the Tribe today and talking Talmud with us. I know we went over our time, but it was such a joy and a delight to have these conversations. And what would really a conversation about Talmud be without kind of going beyond the boundaries of what we had initially thought we were going to do? So thank you both so much. Such a pleasure. You guys, you're both bringing, you're, you're, you're doing it exactly right. You're bringing so much love and energy and the way that you're sharing with each other and, and drawing insights out of the DAF. It, it's actually, it's really inspiring for my own learning. I wish my own learning was as, as what it seems like as deep as the learning that you two are doing with each other. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review the vibe of the tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thanks as always to our editor, Jesse. Stay safe, wear a mask, and go study some Talmud.